0: You see an outline of the sermon on page five of the booklet, and there we're asking a question to start with. What difference does Christology make to lifeology? What difference does Christology make to lifeology? There are lots of ologies in the world, so you can look this up if you're interested. Google it later, it's worth a Google. The word ology is where we get that word we attach to other things that we're thinking about examining or explaining. That's what ology means. It actually comes from a Greek word, a Bible word, logos. That's that's the origination of the word. It means to examine or explain something. And we have lots of ologies in our world where we examine, explain something. You can think of them, I'm sure. Uh, We have sociology, Looking at human behaviour, explaining why do humans do the things that we do. That was a big topic for the last couple of years, human behaviour and sociology. There's also ecology, looking at ecosystems and the way that our environment interacts with all the things that are around, big and small. Um, there's pathology, disease, the examination and explanation of what's going on and all these things. But what about Christology? I'm going to guess that if we hear Christology, even Christians can sometimes, you know, be glazed over. Uh-oh, we're going to be looking at doctrine. Can I encourage you to see that all of life is doctrine? Doctrine is everywhere. We have a doctrine in our education system. A military has a military doctrine. Doctrine is what you believe and teach. And it's everywhere. It's it's what you base your life on. Everyone has their own personal doctrine. What they believe life is about and what I'll teach others, my life is about or teach our children. Everybody's got some form of doctrine. And Christology is one of those things. It's an ology. It's a, a study of, an examination, an explanation of Christology. Can you guess? Christ. Now you might be checking out Jesus for the first time this morning here with us in person or perhaps online and you might be thinking Christology, you mean like pathology and ecology and sociology and technology, Christology, yeah, because we actually want to look into the person of Christ, we want to see who he is as if a life depended upon it and friends it does, it really does. What difference does Christology make to lifeology? And here's the real question. Particularly to your lifeology. What difference does understanding Christ and who he is in the person and being of Christ, what difference does that make to your life? Is this just something for the for the shelves of theologians? Is this just something for the councils and creeds of the ages? Or is this something that actually matters to my life right now? I grew up in a church that said, no creed but the Bible, which worked very well for a few minutes until you had to work out, we had a lot of different interpretations of the Bible and we had to work out what I was actually saying, what you're saying, what we're believing on the Bible. Friends, that is the history of the church. There are creeds in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 is one creed to start with of what we believe, who Jesus is and what that means for his death and resurrection for our sins We use it for our Lord's Supper once a month. 1 Corinthians 15 is a creed. What difference does Christology make in the life of a church community? And what difference does Christology make to our community of Bending on Beyond? We've got a motto at our church. It's on the front page of our website. It goes like this. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. It's why we're called Reforming Church. We are reforming, we are being changed by Jesus. Not us changing his word, not us changing the Bible, but his word changes us. Jesus changes everything about us. He saves us and gathers us and reforms us to be more like him. Jesus changes everything. And we see in John's Gospel, we started in John's Gospels at Christmas time, actually, in John 1, what an appropriate place to start, because we see in John's Gospel, the word of God, the word becomes flesh, and he dwelt among us. His name is Jesus, and we've already seen in John's gospel a snippet. Although he said to his mom at a wedding, my time has not yet come. And he keeps saying that in John's gospel because the cross has not yet come. It's like, mom, not yet, not in front of my friends. Although we've already been there, he says to a Samaritan woman, like a nobody in the day and age that Jesus walked in the earth, he says to a Samaritan woman, I am the Christ. Things are starting to be revealed about who this is. And as these things are revealed, we come to look at him and examine him so that we could even explain him. Now, Christology has been the subject of, well, councils and creeds, controversies for a long time. Councils like the first council of Nicaea 325, the council of Chalcedon 451. There were so many councils in the early church those dates, by the way, of the year. So like 2022, Council of Nicaea 325. So way back then, we've got these councils forming because people are, uh, Bible teachers, preachers, are swerving into all sorts of directions saying, well, Jesus is not fully or truly God, or he's not fully, truly man, or perhaps, you know, the, the, the part of God that's God is actually just his brain, and then there's other parts. Look, you can look this up later, and if you want to find out more, come to a group near you. Come to a reforming group near you this week because this will be part of our group guide. We'll look into this and we'll give you some history and some theology in that group guide online. Do come to a group near you. You'll find out more. But aside from that, here's my sermon summary because we we do have a, a time frame for at least this morning. These councils, these controversies, these creeds were formed because getting Christ wrong is not just a matter of strong error, getting Christ wrong means we actually end up getting life wrong and eternal life wrong. So, after all this, what does it make for us? What difference does it make? This sermon is entitled, Truly God. Truly God. And you could think by that title it truly just matters in academic world. It actually truly doesn't. It matters to you that he's truly God. Truly man, truly God. I'm not one of those people that even, I don't really particularly, it's okay with fully God, fully man, but I prefer truly God, truly man. We can talk about that later. But truly God is what we see Jesus is. And so we see that God is working even until now, even in your life. We pick it up there in John 4 and you could probably wonder why do we go to the official son? Why don't we just kind of go to John 5? Well not only do we like to preach God's word sequentially so that he sets the agenda but there's something important to see about who Jesus is when he heals an official son. We pick up the episode and we see that Jesus has been in Samaria, talking with Samaritans of all people. And then he goes to his home region of Galilee again. And as he's in Cana, where he was at the wedding earlier in John's gospel, he's at Cana, there's an official from Capernaum, 26 kilometers away. And the official at Capernaum hears that Jesus is in Cana. Word of mouth travels fast, the communication's out there. It's in the Cana news, the Capernaum news. And so the, the official travels 26 k's to see Jesus. And he goes to see Jesus and he asks him to heal his son and his son is close to death. And Jesus replies in verse 48, John 4:48. And I want you to notice something. Your Bible probably has got a footnote in it. It probably says at the bottom, it's plural. That's interesting. He's not just talking to the official before him. He says to anyone listening, unless you all see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. I'm old enough to know that about 20, 30 years ago, that was the thing, right? Even in Christian circles. Your church had to be a signs and wonders church. And if it wasn't, no one's going to believe anything. And it kind of petered it out because it was not of Christ. And Jesus knows people easily look for the signs and wonder stuff, the flash, which becomes the flash in the pan, the fad. But Jesus is not just interested in people going to him because he can do party tricks. He wants people to trust him because of who he is. Now, when Jesus says this, it's kind of ironic because you know in verse 54 as Ryan read, he's about to heal the official's son and it's called the second sign according to John. In John's gospel there are seven signs leading up to the cross and resurrection. And, so, and Jesus is going to do that, you know that's going to happen, but before we see that we have to see the emotion of this moment. The father is insistent, he's desperate for his son. This is a common scene in our world, isn't it? You see the pictures coming out of Ukraine? I saw one yesterday. There's a father with his teenage son under a blanket because he's dead and the father is just weeping at the body of his son. See, unless you try and insulate yourself from the real world, the world that we actually inhabit, life is not all awesome. Life is not all easy and life is not all... Your dreams and my dreams coming true. Life is hard. For some people, they don't want to have ambitions. They just want to live through today. And we all feel this at one time or another, perhaps about someone. And here is this official. Look at this official. Here is this official. He's an official, it's called. That's all we know in the text. Perhaps he's a Roman official or a Jewish official. But you can think of an official. He's a middle-class person. He is used to fixing his own problems with his influence, with his money. He's used to fixing his own problems. And this one he can't fix. And so he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, almost interrupting Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed his word. We see that scene then. It's it's he's going down the road, and the servants are running down the road, and they meet the man and they say to him, He's recovering, and the official says, When? 1 p.m. And the official knows that was the time when Jesus just said a word. And he believes. The signs of Jesus in John's gospel keep pointing us up the road. They keep pointing us up the road beyond Capernaum, beyond Galilee and beyond Samaria, further to Jerusalem until a hill is called the place of the skull to a cross and to an empty tomb. The signs of Jesus point that far. And these signs are all about this question. Who is Jesus? Who is this? The officials saw and believed, you and I. And see this about Jesus. Jesus is the one to pray to. And Jesus is the one when you can, when all else is lost, he's the one you can go to. He's the one who cares. He's the one you can ask for in prayer, even if he's 26 kilometers away or he feels distant. He is with us. I think that we come to prayer, for us as a church, and we almost, we pray in a perfunctory way. Yes, we know we should pray, and, Oh, you know, I know I should pray about this, I'll write my prayer point down, I'll say the prayer point, look, at the end of the Bible study, I'll try and think of something to pray for, or perhaps I don't want to pray. And I think all of those things are symptoms of a problem in our hearts. See, prayerlessness says, I can handle life on my own, thanks very much. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. If you're not prayerful or you're not relying upon God in prayer, you are saying, you are actually, in fact, declaring, I can do life on my own, my lifeology is sorted, I don't need you. And then we say things like, it didn't work anyway. What, you're going to pray? Oh, because if that does anything. Look at this official. He does not give up asking. Now, God does not promise to heal every single time. And there are sick people and lame people, paralyzed people, even as Jesus still walks the earth at this time. But we know one day there'll be no more tears. And we know from then until now, God is telling us to rely on him in prayer. To not give up. We know this from Luke 18, but here we see in John 4, the official does not give up. He keeps asking, Lord, you can do this. I'm asking, I'm relying on you. I've got nothing else but relying on you in prayer. Friends, it's good for our hearts to rely on Christ in prayer, and if we do that, we'll actually see who He is. He's truly God. And then as we move from that scene, we move into John 5, where Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. He's walking past the pool at Bethesda. And at this pool, which is a famous pool, there are all these people. The the word is a multitude in John 5. John writes, it's a multitude of people. It's full of people who are lame and are paralyzed, who are invalid, who are sick. It's full of people who are placing their hope in this pool of water. That's why they're there. And Jesus sees a man, particularly, who's been lying there for 38 years. That's older than many of us in this room. In fact, it's older than the average lifespan of the ancient Near East at the time. 38 years he's been invalid, he's been there. And Jesus says in verse 6 Do you want to be healed? Now, for us, we could think, well, that's a captain obvious kind of question, isn't it? Do you want to be healed? Of course, he wants to be healed, which means you expect the captain obvious answer, which is Yes, I want to be healed. Is that what he says? It's not what he says at all. Have a look. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man, verse 7, sir, I've no one to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up while I'm going down another steps before me. That's his answer. Can't get into the pool. Now your Bible may have a footnote here which could be helpful for us. Um, when we have the Bible, we have the scriptures and they've been carefully examined and handed down to us through a textual reception system and process that means we have the Bible that is accurate and true as the scribes who wrote it. But sometimes in the early days when scribes were copying the Bible and they didn't have photocopiers to get it exactly right and their job, a lot of it depended on them doing a good job. But sometimes a scribe would insert something later we have one of those at this verse at this point. So we have in later manuscripts, a scribe has inserted perhaps what was a superstition at the time, that it was believed with this particular pool, an angel would come down from God on occasions and stir the water up and if you were able to and you were sick and able to get into the water that was stirred up, then you would be healed. That was a superstition that perhaps was believed. Because it's an, an, a later edition, we don't believe it's actually part of God's Word. We've got the footnote there, but that gives us some context to what's going on here. Because even if you didn't have that verse in this text, still, what does the man rely upon? Like, even if that verse is not here, even if those words are not here, what is he relying upon? He looks to Jesus, Jesus in Jerusalem for the second time in John's Gospel. His renown is everywhere. He looks at Jesus. He hears someone saying, do you want to be healed? And his answer is, I can't get into the stirred up water. Whether that water is bubbling from underground springs, whether it's just kind of somehow moving, there's some, there's some wind, like we got some wind outside moving our roller door out there. Whatever's happening, the man is focused on the water. That, that superstitious belief, that thing is going to fix my life. He'd rather trust in hydrology than Christology. What are our superstitious hopes? Like we might think even as Christians, oh, I've got no superstition in my life. Yeah, I know what to do when i got the TV week and I see the star signs. Bunch of hogwash. I don't trust that stuff but we do tend to trust other things, don't we? Our hearts gravitate towards that fix, that thing that if I get that thing in life, it will make my life better. Do you want to be happy? Yeah, well get that thing. Then I'll be happy. And we have these superstitious beliefs that encircle us all the time that we go for and we focus on and attach our heart's affections upon them. And we've got Jesus saying, do you want to be healed of this internal Spiritual sickness that plagues your soul, and we easily go for the superstitious stuff. There's a theologian; his name is Carl Truman, and I, was, I met him once in Melbourne. I was talking with Carl Truman, and he was saying that he'd been to Rome recently. So, you know, a lot of us go to Rome for holidays. He goes to study uh, things like the Reformation. Um, he's a Reformed scholar, and he says here's the juxtaposition that is. Roman Catholicism, that is sort of Rome. He says, you can go to a building and there's there's a great hallway and there's two wings. And in one wing, there are all the books of history and all the information and all the research you could find and examine and explain things. And on the other wing, there's all the icons and the things and superstitious things that people hold in this museum. They believe if you've got those things, you'll have some extra power or healing or something. He says, that's the juxtaposition of Rome. That you can hold all the actual and relevant information yet believe in superstitious things and somehow they have them in the same building. But we do this in our own hearts, don't we? We're so tempted to it. We're so tempted to hold both things together. We have Jesus speaking truth to us and yet we hold on to other things. So here is this man who can only see the water in front of him and he's putting his hope in some bubbly water for 38 years and Jesus has to interrupt his focus. It's almost like you look at John 5 verse 8, you look at verse 8 and it's almost like Jesus is just like, stop, stop it, get up, take up your bed and walk, but with a word. We see in verse 9, at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. And then John, the apostle John, writes, little end note, by the way, verse 9, it was the Sabbath day. Now, for us, it's too easy to go, well, that's interesting. But that makes everything go sideways. It's the Sabbath day. See, can we just pause at this point? I want to ask a question, actually. Can we pause at this point? Look at our world right now with all the fallen, broken, sick, sorrowing, suffering people in our world. Think of them. Think of people you know who are suffering. If you're not sure what to think of, think of the man, the father in Ukraine with his teenage son under a blanket. Look at our world and reflect upon this question. If someone came along Who, with love and compassion, spoke into our hearts' desires, with grace and service, solved our deepest problems, who healed us, who raised the dead. If someone came into a world doing that, what would be your gut reaction? Would it be, let's kill him? It's their reaction. Here is the person who's come to undo all the all the problems in our world. He's come to right the wrongs. He's come to reverse the curse. And they respond with, you did it on a Sabbath. You got to die, friend. Let's kill him. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, because that's all they've got at this point, the evidence they have at hand. They haven't got Jesus yet. The Jews said to the man who'd been healed, "Uh, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. Now, what's incredible about this is how far from the Sabbath the Jewish rulers are. There's actually no law that says you can't take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. But the legalists that they are, they've added laws. That's what legalists do. Legalists get the law and then we add other laws around it. Yeah, I see the law there, but it's not enough for me. In fact, I've got my own standards, my own values. I'm going to put around it and you need to meet them as well. So I see God's law... It's all very well, thanks God, but I've got some other laws I'd like to add. Don't do this, do do this. I don't do this, and I do do this, and I expect you to do it as well. That's called a the legalist. They had a club in those days, almost had jackets, they were called the Pharisees. And whether the Pharisees here are not, we're not told, we are told Jewish rulers. These, these are the people ruling the show. And they are, to their core and their heart, self-righteous. If you look up the Mishnah, Sabbat 7.2, it's worth a Google. I had to, for the sake of sermon length, that's something I try not to talk about too much, but for the sake of sermon length, I've, I've contracted a bit of a, of a quote. This is what the legalists of the day said you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to weave two threads together. You're not allowed to sever two threads You're not allowed to tie a knot or untie a knot. Sew two stitches with a needle. You can't tear a fabric in order to sew two stitches. You can't write more than two letters. You can't erase more than two letters. You can't extinguish a fire nor start a fire. You can't strike a blow with a hammer to complete a production of a vessel. Carry an object from one domain to another. That's the carrying of the bed bit carrying an object from one place to another, can't do it on the Sabbath. And if you break any of that, you get lashed, 39 lashes. They don't get the Sabbath. Friends, what's the Sabbath for? Do you know what the word Sabbath means? Rest. The very word means rest. In John's gospel, there is a creation, recreation theme running through the whole gospel. Here is a bunch of sick, broken people who are burdened beyond their own physical capability of doing anything about it. They are not resting. They want rest. And who walks in the room but God himself who comes to reverse the curse and give this man rest. Rest. And all the legalists can do is now come to punish. So they interrogate him how this happen? And he says, oh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take your bed and walk. And Jesus is withdrawn by this stage. But they, we end up seeing Jesus finds the man in the temple. And it's significant because he says to him, see, you are well, like we sang, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's Jesus saying? There is something worse than being invalid 38 years. There's something far worse than that. It's being separated from God's love forever. There's something far worse than being invalid 38 years. So sin no more. You're in the temple now. You're in the inner courts of the temple where you can be as a complete person. Sin no more And as he does this and exhorts and encourages this man, this man then goes and kind of just dobs on Jesus. And so the rulers find him and say, you can't be doing this. You can't be giving rest to people on the Sabbath. Who says? We say it's our rules that we made up. And then Jesus says something very controversial. Verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Here's where we see Jesus Christ is truly God. You see in your Bibles there, if you look at verse 18 following, look at verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. People often say today, oh, Jesus died because he was a good person. Jesus died because he rubbed the establishment up the wrong way. Jesus died because the Romans couldn't handle him. Jesus died because the Jews didn't like him. None of those reasons are why Jesus died on the cross. Under God's plan, Jesus died to save us from our sins. Under man's hand, he died because he said and showed, and the testimony is true, he is truly God. And we, us fallen humans, said we'd rather be gods ourselves, thanks. We'd rather make up the laws around here and have the glory. And they didn't want him. He's rejected by his own people. Jesus is truly God. At the very least, these guys... Understand when he says he's equal to the Father, that he's working, they get what he's saying. Like they're picking up what Jesus is putting down and they're angry. Lots of people today will say things like, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You may have had Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. They're incredibly nice people. I happen to know this because over the years, the last nine years, we've had two uh, different Jehovah's Witness families in our home every Friday for morning tea for a while, and two different times in our life. So they door knocked our home, and we said, Come on in, we want to talk. And we'd meet and talk, and the conversation would always go for a while until we got to this point in the conversation of who is Jesus. And then we would gently talk about who Jesus is, show the scriptures, and just. Chobos Witnesses do not believe Jesus is God. The problem with that, of course, is Jesus keeps saying that he is. And then you get to a place like in John chapter 20, uh, Jesus has been saying to his disciples, the risen Christ has come. He tells a bunch of them. Thomas is not there and Thomas says, I won't believe it, will not believe it unless I see it. A week later, Jesus appears in the room and Thomas, what does he say? Always show you Jehovah's Witness friends his verse. What does Thomas say? my Lord and my God. And Jesus is saying here, early on in John's gospel, truly, truly. Notice he says it a few times towards the end of John chapter 5, truly, truly. We've seen this before. Jesus is the only person who can say this. Truly, the word truly is literally the Greek word, Amen. We say at the end of a prayer to say we're praying this in Jesus' name, we're asking. We say, may this be true, we agree that this would be real for us. We say, amen, amen, amen. Jesus doesn't say it at the end, he says at the beginning of his sentences, why? Because he says, I tell you this is true. Truly, truly, amen, amen. He says in verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father's doing because what the father does, the son does likewise. He is truly God. In this whole statement, Jesus is showing something about Christology, about him. He is truly man, truly God. He is one with God, the one God and yet he is a distinct person of the Godhead. He doesn't say that the father and I are uh, 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 totally the one person the one god but they're distinct persons the spirit is a distinct person of the triune god one god three persons in fact if you want to kind of summarize trinitarian theology in a sentence it's helpful and often it is that's why we have creeds you can say one god three persons you can't go wrong as often many have we say this in the Nicene Creed sometimes. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This is Jesus. He is truly God. In our group guides, we're going to be fleshing this out more. So one more little plug for our groups. Come to a reforming group near you. And we're going to go deep into looking at who Jesus is, and that He's truly God. But here, the question is: Do we see that, like the official saw it, like a lame man saw it, like even His enemies saw it? Do you see the claim that Jesus makes? He is truly God. In the Heidelberg Catechism, if you read through that, and we often we can teach that to our children. Question 16, why must he be truly human and truly righteous? Because justice demands that we have sinned, he must pay for our sin but a sinner cannot pay for others. Then why must he be truly God? So that by the power of his divinity, he will bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. He is truly God, which makes him truly saviour. There is no salvation without Jesus being God. And this testimony is true. Earlier we heard from Michelle. Michelle gave her testimony. What a tender story of the work of Christ in her life. Get to know Michelle, talk with her afterwards, ask her about it more. Michelle has seen grief, she has known what it is to grow up looking for healing in her life and to see Christ come in and tenderly heal her life and he's still healing in her life and my life and all our lives here and her testimony and that's what a testimony is by the way it's not to herself her testimony is to Christ look to Christ that he is truly God and he can truly do this in your life do you believe that God is capable of actually changing things in your life Are you persistent in prayer and asking? Are you trusting or are you so focused on something else like the man at that pool that you can't see how big Christ is? You see, for us, the testimony that Jesus points to, and he points to several things. He points to the testimony of his father, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of scriptures, and even to people who are legalists, who love the law. He says, you want to talk about the law? The testimony of Moses. That's where he finishes the testimony of Moses himself. What difference does it make that Jesus is truly God in your life? Well, Jesus is saying this to you. Believe Jesus. Believe him, it'll change your life. I think it means three things for us. Three things for our hearts. The first is the way we need to depend upon Jesus truly in life and death. This man, the official we saw earlier, he saw the difference between life and death. He went to Jesus because his son's life depended upon it. Do we go to Jesus like that? Do we go to Jesus in prayer because, yeah, I know we should pray in kind of in a perfunctory way, or I don't want to pray because it didn't work last time. Or do we go to Jesus because our life depends upon it? You and I need to see it. it's a matter of life and death. Secondly, turn to God from our superstitions. Anything we rely upon for our deepest needs being met, they will not meet them. It will actually fail you in the end. Jesus will never fail you. He will never fail meeting your deepest needs. On the last day, He'll give you an eternal Sabbath of rest. And thirdly, we need to hear the words of Jesus speaking to our future life and death of that eternal rest. Friends, I say this because it's topical and it happened just yesterday. I don't know much about cricket. I know nothing about Shane Warne's life. I can't comment, I can't say, I don't know what was on his heart. I don't know what he believed, what was his doctrine about life. I don't know his ology of life. I don't know anything. I don't wish to claim that I do or say anything about that at all. But here's what I do know. Here's what you can know. If you go on Twitter, you can read Shane Warne's last tweet. And Shane Warne's last tweet was this. He expressed his sadness at the death of Rod Marsh the day before. Another cricketer, Shane Warne tweeted, I'm so sad to hear about the death of Rod Marsh. Rest in peace, mate. Shane Warne did not know that 24 hours later, he would also step into eternity. That was his last tweet. He didn't know. He wasn't ready for his own death the next day. Are you? You could be a teenager in Ukraine or a teenager in Australia. You could be a father who sees it in his own family and grieves. You could be famous and rich beyond measure in our world. And yet... Can you will meet the one who is truly God, who is judge and saviour, and his name is Jesus, he's the Christ. The Jewish rulers relied on their own values in life. Many of us do in our society, self-imposed values that make us good people. But what does God think of that? He wants you to trust in Jesus, to turn to him from your sin the real Jesus, truly God Jesus. And notice in John 5, verse 34, when Jesus is saying this, I want you to look in verse 34. This is important. When Jesus is saying this, he's saying this to people who are against him. You might be thinking, I don't want anything to do with this. Russ, you offended me in a multiple ways. I've got so many problems with this sermon, right? I've got so many problems with your words. It's like it's been a long time or whatever it is. There might be many reasons where you could just go, put up the barriers and say, rebuff, I'm done, won't come back, I don't like this, you could do that. But you know what, Jesus gets that a lot. But the very people he's speaking to who want to do this, notice what, look, we see in verse 34. What does Jesus say in verse 34? He says to them, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He's even speaking to his enemies, and he says, I'm actually saying it so you may be saved. I'm not trying to tick you off. I'm not trying to keep you here a long time. I'm not trying to befuddle you with, with with high ideas of what life is about. I'm saying it so you may see who I am, so you may be saved. Friends, believe Jesus. It'll change your life. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven. We're praying that you would now occupy our lowly hearts. You've come to us. You've come to the cross for us. God in flesh, God with us, God in Christ to save us. We want to respond to the word of Jesus now. We want to respond by believing what he says, that if we hear his word and believe him, we don't come into judgment, but we pass from death to life. We want to respond and say, we believe For those of us who are struggling with that, for those of us who perhaps receive some help from Jesus and would rather look away, help us to see who he is, he's truly God, he's truly come for us, help us to truly believe. And now we say, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.